Hi everyone, I want to remind you that I'm running a promo right now. If you sign up for my Patreon for a monthly or per episode donation, I'll send you a History of U.S. Economics podcast mug. I'll be running the promo indefinitely, so even if you hear the episode a year or two after its release, I'll still send you one. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash U.S. Econ podcast. As always, you can also support this project by following the show on Twitter, at US Econ Podcast, or checking out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, leaving a review or subscribing is always really helpful. All right, thank you. Enjoy the show. In this episode, we're going to detour off of the path of American economic history and dive into the economic theories that were taking shape throughout Europe in the mid-19th century. I thought we'd do it because A, it's interesting, and B, the economic theories taking shape at this period will have an indelible effect on the course of U.S. economics later on in the story. In this episode, we'll get into the theories of Karl Marx and how his ideas arose to oppose the capitalist ideologies of the day. Specifically, I'm referring to the popular rise of the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital as a response to the extractive ideas of the classical economists, like those of David Ricardo, Adam Smith, and John Stuart Mill. We'll finish the episode with how the classical economists responded to Marx's criticisms, embodied through the neoclassical revolution, which I like to think of as Capitalism 2.0. This episode is going to be a state of the union of sorts a state of economic thought in the world of the 19th century, you might say. If economic theory exists as an organism whose DNA is constantly mutating and evolving in response to environmental pressures, then the intellectual upheaval of Karl Marx was a new species which forced the incumbent species of capitalism to adapt or die. Let's get into it. Vladimir Lenin once said, There are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. Though he said it in reference to the Russian Revolution, it could also apply to the revolutions of economic thought which took place in the 19th century. In 1848, both the Communist Manifesto and John Stuart Mill's textbook called Principles were published, both of which were seminal texts of opposing ideologies. Starting from the progenitor of Lenin's ideas, let's talk about Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, and the Communist Manifesto. The first thing to keep in mind is that Marx was not the first person to come up with the idea of socialism. Several people had theorized about it before Marx, though because of the popularity of the Communist Manifesto, Marx is sometimes called the father of socialism, particularly his brand of perfected socialism, known as communism. The Communist Manifesto outlines a general transformation which humanity is to endure. Humanity, Marx writes, started in slavery, morphed into feudalism, and then into capitalism, but would inevitably continue its evolutionary march into socialism, and finally its most complete stage, communism. Communism, therefore, was the enlightened version of socialism, and in Marx's estimation, it was the ideal state of economic being. Where socialism puts education, healthcare, and social welfare into the hands of the state, Communism takes all of those views and adds to it the abolition of social classes, the abolition of private property, even the abolition of money itself. Under Marx's notion of communism, people would work, but not for income. They would do it for pleasure and for pride. Indeed, the Communist Manifesto criticized capitalism because it reduced human interactions into mere cash payments. 
To quote the manifesto, capitalism has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, and the man of science into mere wage laborers. The Communist Manifesto claims another of the problems with capitalism is that it converts society into two classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. In layman's terms, that's the haves and the have-nots. The bourgeoisie control the capital and the means of production, earning interest on their money, while the proletariat toil and operate those means of production for an hourly or daily wage. In other words, the factory owner is the bourgeois, and the factory worker is the prole. It's easy to imagine how this interpretation of society was appealing to the masses because Marx was writing from London right after its Industrial Revolution. It was a period of 16-hour workdays, children as young as the age of nine working in dangerous mines, unsafe and filthy working conditions, and general misery of the working class. Marx spoke to their struggle at the hands of the capitalists, whom he criticized for being too focused on what he called, quote, production for profit, unquote. The Communist Manifesto was Marx's solution to the grim lives of the oppressed working class. In it, Marx outlines his ten-point answer to the capitalist oppression. I'll just read it. He calls for, one, the abolition of private property and land, and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Three, abolition of all rights to inheritance. Four, confiscation of all property of all immigrants and rebels. 5. Centralization of credit into the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. 6. Centralization of the means of communication and transport into the hands of the state. 7. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands, and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. 8. Equal obligation of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. 9. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing. Gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. And 10. Free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. And the combination of education with industrial production. Those are the ten demands of Marxism. Let me distill them somewhat. Marx calls for the abolition of private property and wanted to get rid of inheritances. He called for the banking and financial system to be run by the central government as a monopoly. He also wants the state to control the means of communication and people's transportation. Everyone should be required to work, and the population should be dispersed across the country instead of being centralized into cities. Land, Marx says, should be developed for factory and agricultural use, and child labor should be abolished in favor of free education. Marx also believed that revolution, probably violent, was the means by which socialism would supplant capitalism as the predominant economic ideology, but that that transformation and the violence it entailed was the natural progression of humanity. Eventually, Marx believed, socialism would evolve into communism and usher in an enlightened state of existence without socioeconomic classes, without money, without inequality, where the government controlled the means of production and distributed everything from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Marx's notion of communism also abolished religion. He called it the opioid of the masses. 
And in a stark affront to capitalism, communism also abolished profits. Profit, Marx argued, was the quantifiable measure of the oppression of the working class. Instead, Marx claimed that all profit should be distributed to the laborers who made it, instead of accruing into the hands of the bourgeois exploiters. The Communist Manifesto popularized socialism, and when combined with Marx's later work, a book by the name of Das Kapital, they stood as a withering critique of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and John Stuart Mill's creation. Perhaps not surprisingly, the idea of Marxism found immense popularity among the downtrodden working class. The popularity of Marxism was bolstered by the fact that it caught the major capitalist thinkers flat-footed for about 20 years. The followers of Adam Smith failed to mount a meaningful counterattack to Marx's blistering ideological critiques. A new mutation in the DNA of economics had emerged. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto in 1848, and followed it up with another critique of capitalism, Das Kapital, in 1867. Das Kapital affirmed Marx's views that the problem with capitalism was its failure to appropriately pay for the labor of the working class. Imagine a factory worker toiled for 16 hours per day and made, say, $10 an hour. During the worker's 16 hours of labor, the worker produced one widget which was sold for $400 on the market. According to the capitalist milieu of the day, this dynamic of wage, labor, and profit was perfectly acceptable. But it was against this dynamic which Marx leveled his criticisms. The worker was paid $160 for his day's labor and produced something which was sold for $400, a difference of $240. Imagine $40 had to go to business expenses like insurance or capex. But what then was that extra $200, Marx asked? And who did that $200 belong to? Marx called that $200 surplus value and argued it belonged to the laborer. They earned it by the product of their labor, after all. The capitalist, owner of the factory, didn't earn that money, Marx argued. For the business owner, then, not to pay the laborer the full earnings of their labor was exploitation. This was the backbone of Marx's entire argument. Marx's mission was to figure out how to solve this riddle. In Das Kapital, Marx puts forth his answer to this question which is really just a question of how does one appropriately value labor. To answer this question, Marx constructed a whole new paradigm of price and value, an entirely new framework. Marx asserted that the first step in figuring out the proper wage to pay laborers begins with an understanding of how much time goes into the creation of every good in an economy. If we can figure out the average amount of time that goes into the creation of, say, a backpack, and we know the average price that backpacks fetch on the market, we can then figure out the appropriate rate to pay the laborers who made that backpack. Marx argued that when it came to figuring out the proper amount to pay a laborer, just knowing the price of the product that they created wasn't good enough, because prices are subject to fluctuate based off of factors like collusion, price gouging, or changes in market conditions, and it wasn't fair to pass that price fluctuation along to the laborer. Therefore, Marx figured we need an enormous central planning agency whose job it would be to discover the average amount of time that went into the production of every single good an economy produced. That agency might find, for example, that of all the backpack manufacturers in an economy, it took an average of one hour to produce one backpack. If we know these backpacks sold for an average of $50 on the market and cost $10 in materials and direct expenses to produce, 
it would follow that the worker who sewed and manufactured that backpack should earn the remaining $40 per hour. What if the worker was less efficient than average? For instance, what if an inexperienced worker took one and a half hours to produce a backpack? Should they be compensated for that extra half an hour? Marx said no. Marx argued that workers should only be compensated for what he called socially necessary labor time, which was the average amount of time needed to produce any good. Any time spent in excess of the average was inefficient and didn't deserve compensation. Marx argued that the entirety of surplus value should be distributed to the laborers who created the products. Marx went so far as to say that there should be no return for the bourgeois owners of capital. Capital, according to Marx, was just frozen labor, and consequently, it belonged to the laborers. For about 20 years, capitalist ideologues failed to refute Marx's seemingly impeccable logic. Marx's criticism that profits could only be had by the exploitation of the working class wasn't meaningfully refuted until Eugene von Bombeverk published a text by the name of Capital and Interest. Bavarek's response is considered by modern economists to have dealt a fatal blow to Marx, relegating Marx's law of value to the dustbin of debunked economic ideas. Bavarek fired back at Marx with two main ideas. The first was called the waiting argument, which basically said that capitalists must abstain from current consumption when they use their money to invest in machinery or a factory. Workers, however, don't have to wait. They're paid on a consistent schedule every two weeks or monthly or whatever regardless of if the product of their labor has been sold or not. Imagine the laborers who work at a ship construction factory. It might take months before the ship that they're building is sold, yet the laborer receives a paycheck every two weeks regardless, while the capitalist must wait to be paid. Bavarek argued that the inconvenience that capitalists had to face, they being forced to put their money on hold for potentially years before getting to use it or see any return for it, was rightly compensated through interest. Without this return in the form of interest, there would be no cause for capitalists to invest their money in building factories or to provide jobs and a source of income for the proletariat in the first place. If there were no return on capital, why wouldn't a capitalist just freely spend their wealth on a lavish lifestyle and a life of excess? Why risk it on an investment? Bavarek's second attack against Marx's law of value and theory of surplus value focused on compensating the business owner for something which they alone bear so that the working class doesn't have to. I'm referring to risk. If a business fails, the worst an employee might face is missing a paycheck and needing to find another job. However, if the business fails, the capitalist entrepreneur can face bankruptcy, creditors, or personal financial ruin. It's worth pointing out some criticisms of Bavarek's thoughts. Does the CEO with millions of dollars saved and a golden parachute awaiting him if he is ever fired truly bear more risk than the worker living paycheck to paycheck? The level of suffering a poor-waged laborer might face if they can't make rent or buy food is considerably more than the level of suffering a multimillionaire CEO is going to face if they drive their business to the ground and cause that waged laborer to lose their job. Despite this criticism, Bavarek's argument that capitalists were rightly compensated for delaying gratification, which was the waiting argument, and for bearing more risk than the workers, deflected Marx's criticisms and helped to recover classical economics' damaged reputation. In addition to Bavarek, a trio of economists also came to the aid of Smith's classical model by the names of Karl Menger, Leon Walras, and William Jevons in the 1870s. 
Once the work of Manger, Walrus, and Jevons was combined with the work of Beverk, who published in the 1880s, by the way, the four men ushered in a new and improved version of Smith's ideology of capitalism, creating a new model with which to analyze the flow of goods and services in a society. Let's call it Capitalism 2.0. What they created was a framework that aimed to improve on Adam Smith's classical model, but their new version of capitalism was born of the need to adapt and survive Marx's criticisms. This new model, a new generation of economic DNA, was creatively dubbed Neoclassical Economics. We'll get into the ideas of Manger, Walrus, and Jevons in a moment, but let me set the stage for them with a review of the state of capitalist thought at this time. As we know, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations in 1776. In that work, Smith outlines a new economic ideology which argues that a nation's wealth should be defined not by the gold in the country's vaults, but rather by the level of goods and services which improve the lives of the nation's people. Therefore, Europe's mercantilist pursuit of gold throughout the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries was the wrong pursuit if a nation wanted to be truly rich. Instead, Smith argued, if people were allowed to pursue their own self-interests, they would cause the general welfare of a nation to improve the fastest in terms of goods, services, and by extension, quality of life. If entrepreneurs could freely pursue their personal fortunes, then along the way they could create jobs, investment opportunities, and provide the goods and services that enrich society. That should be the goal of an economy, Smith argued, not the relentless quest for gold which had consumed the minds of European monarchies for over two centuries. Side note here, the monumental importance of Smith's work can't be overstated. In fact, I've heard it argued that the wealth of nations is second only to the Bible in influencing the course of human history. Take a look at a chart of global GDP over the last several centuries. That hockey stick that you see going vertical around the year 1800? That was Smith. Smith's ideas launched the ideology of classical economics, and his theories rocked Western economies. For example, one of Smith's ideas was the division of labor. The idea was this, imagine a shoemaking shop. It was precedent at the time that an artisan shoemaker would be responsible for the entire process of making a pair of shoes. They would gather the leather, make the lacing, do the stitching, build the shoe, run the storefront, you get the idea. Throughout most of human history, artisans operated like this. They were responsible for their product from start to finish. Then Smith came along with the idea of the division of labor. Basically, the theory proved that output could be increased if instead of having one person doing all parts of the shoemaking process, a different person could each specialize in one part of the supply chain. So one person is responsible for gathering the leather, one person just sews, one person runs the store, and so on. It's like a McDonald's nowadays, where one person runs the cash register, another grills burgers, and another makes fries. Undeniably, it is more efficient. But it also makes work mindless and repetitive. But nonetheless, the division of labor became a popular way of running businesses in the 19th century. The concept was instrumental in increasing the productive output of England, which ultimately led to the nation's industrial revolution. Another mutation to capitalist economic DNA came from David Ricardo, who took over the helm of the classical school of economics after Smith's death in 1790. Ricardo argued that just like workers specializing in certain tasks, entire countries should specialize in the production of only certain goods. In other words, instead of England trying to produce everything that it needed itself so that it could hoard its gold, sometimes it could be more cost-effective for the country to just buy goods from Portugal or Spain. That way, England could focus on doing what it's good at, instead of inefficiently spending resources and money producing goods which could cheaply be imported from somewhere else. This became known as Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, 
and it had the effect of the English economy gravitating towards those industries in which the country already had productive advantage over other countries. Factories started popping up all over England, textile factories, chemical factories, and ironworks were England's main specialties. The result of Ricardo's ideas was that the products of England's factories became more and more homogenous, and the workers' tasks within those factories became repetitive and homogenous as well. I'm trying to show the environment into which the Communist Manifesto was written. The working class had little option but to do repetitive tasks all day in factories which produced the same goods day in and day out. Against this backdrop, the manifesto reached immense popularity among the working classes of Europe, and in response to its publishing, revolts broke out across Germany, Austria, Italy, and France. Capitalist theory took a blow from Marxism, and with Ricardo dead since 1823, it fell on John Stuart Mill to try to field Marxist criticisms. John Stuart Mill, whose book Principles was published in the same year as the Communist Manifesto, stood on the shoulders of Ricardo and Smith. Mill's text echoed many of the sentiments of Adam Smith, including advocating a government with limited functions, really just protection, legal, and taxation roles, and he wrote that governments were best to keep a laissez-faire approach, meaning a hands-off administration with little or no intervention in the market. So Mill was on the other side of the spectrum in this regard than Karl Marx. In later editions of Mill's book, however, he took a more socialist stance towards labor, arguing businesses should be run as worker cooperatives, a system where the working class, not just the bourgeois owners, held decision-making power over a corporation. The socialist influence that worked its way into the writings of John Stuart Mill could be seen as a triumph of Marxism over contemporary capitalists. For a period following the publishing of the Communist Manifesto and Mill's book Principles, the classical model fell out of favor in Europe and capitalist theory stagnated. But then in 1871, decades happened. The three economists I mentioned earlier, Carl Menger, William Stanley Jevons, and Leon Walras, shortly afterwards, published their thoughts and revitalized Smith's ideas. The DNA of capitalism had mutated again. The neoclassical revolution, as this event is remembered, marks a period where capitalist theory adapts in response to Marx's claims. Indeed, neoclassical economics is the framework behind most economies in the 21st century now. It's the framework taught in most Econ 101 classes, and one could argue it has supplanted communism wherever the two ideologies converge. At the root of neoclassical thought lies Smith's classical economics, so Smith's ideas of the invisible hand and the free market lived on. But on top of Smith's model, Manger, Jevons, and Walrus overlaid a new, serious improvement. You see, Smith's model had a dangerous flaw, one that seems obvious to us today, but at the time was unclear. It had to do with how value was measured and determined. At the core of Smith's models, he argued that an item's value was just a summation of the costs of labor that went into that product's creation. But this theory, called Smith's adding up theory of value, or the cost of production theory, struggled to account for things that took little labor to produce yet fetched a high price, like some kinds of art, for example, or a plot of undeveloped real estate. The adding up theory of value also struggled to price labor itself. How much should workers be paid for their time under this theory? It gets murky pretty quick. Marx was quick to point this out in Das Kapital. And as I mentioned, Marx argued that if Adam Smith's adding up theory of value was true, and goods were priced according to the amount of labor that went into them, how, then, could factory owners ever turn a profit? Shouldn't the factory's goods be valued at the same amount the factory paid to its laborers? Marx argued that if the adding up theory of value were true, 
then the rich bourgeoisie could only become rich by not paying their laborers what they deserved. But the neoclassical revolution answered Marx's criticism. It did so by redefining how value should be determined. The neoclassical school repealed Smith's ideas of the adding-up theory of value and rejected Ricardo's ideas that things had some objective value that had to be discovered. Instead, Manger, Jevons, and Walrus, who came to be known as the marginalists, argued that value was subjective and merely a function of supply and demand, an idea which is thoroughly accepted nowadays. In other words, the marginalists argued that something's price is the highest amount that someone is willing to pay for it, that someone existing on the margin of a demand curve, hence the name marginalists. When it comes to valuing wages of labor, the root of Marx's criticism, the neoclassicists now had an answer. They said, well, if value is just a function of supply and demand, then labor prices must be just, assuming the worker had sufficient work opportunity and accepted the wage voluntarily. Let me explain. Say a factory worker is making $10 an hour. If there are few factory workers capable of doing that job, in other words, supply of labor is low, then workers can demand a higher wage. If there are tons of people willing and able to do the job, meaning supply of workers is high, then the wages will go down. The factory, after all, wants to pay the lowest amount that it can get away with and still get the job done. On the demand side, if a factory needs a laborer tomorrow because of some emergency or something, meaning demand for labor is high, then the factory will pay a higher wage to attract labor quickly. If the factory is fully staffed and doesn't need any more workers, meaning demand for labor is low, then the factory has no incentive to increase wages. In fact, it might even try to lower them. In all four of those cases, however, assuming the government didn't force the factory to pay a certain wage, and assuming the government didn't force the individuals to work, then the voluntary decision on the part of the factory to offer employment at a particular wage, and the voluntary decision of the worker to accept employment at that stated wage, means no exploitation occurred. In short, the factory hired whomever would work for the lowest possible wage. Or put more technically, the factory hired whomever existed at the leftmost margin of the demand curve. Therefore, wages will naturally settle on an equilibrium between supply and demand for workers. If the factory manages to turn a profit, it wasn't actually at the expense of the employees. The employees, the neoclassical school might argue, should be working at whatever wage they saw fit for which to exchange their time. The neoclassicist might answer criticisms of low wages by saying, well, if the worker voluntarily agreed to accept the job at that pay rate, then there is no exploitation. They chose that job, they chose that pay rate and accepted it. If the worker believes they can fetch a higher wage somewhere else, they're free to change jobs to the one that pays more. The profundity of this concept is worth reiterating. If the economy is healthy and workers are capable of moving to other jobs, then that puts upward pressure on wages because companies want to retain their workforce and use wages as a lure. On the other hand, though, if any particular company pays too much, then a flood of people would apply for that job. This, of course, is an increase in the supply of labor, and that would put downward pressure on the wages. It all creates a balancing act between the forces pushing wages up, an effort by companies to attract and retain talent, and the forces pushing wages down, which is the supply of labor. The balance found between those two opposing forces is the equilibrium price for labor. It is the proper price to pay a laborer. This adaptation of capitalist DNA deflected Marx's criticisms and was a groundbreaking realization in the world of economics. The epiphany improved upon Adam Smith's theories and was an event known as the Neoclassical Revolution. 
You might also hear it called the marginalist revolution. Either way, the neoclassical model of economics has remained a predominant component of economic thought even up through today. In the 1930s, another economic revolution took place, known as the Keynesian Revolution, but even Keynes's ideas kept the framework of the neoclassical school at their core. To conclude this episode, let me do a recap. Capitalism is characterized by private property and free markets. Marxism is the ideology put forth in the Communist Manifesto, which Marx and Engels hope would usher in socialism and ultimately communism. The Manifesto, combined with Das Kapital, also slung heavy criticism at the capitalist system pervading Europe and the class divides which it created. One undeniable criticism of capitalism which Marx brought to light was the wild market swings capitalism brought about. Pure, unrestrained capitalism has led to euphoria-inducing inflationary booms, followed by misery-inducing deflationary busts. In other words, unrestrained capitalism is the story of business cycles where several years of plenty are followed by years of destitution. That's exactly what we saw when America embodied unrestrained capitalism between the 1830s and the 1860s when the Jacksonian Democrats were in power. The Jacksonian Democrats, remember, believed in laissez-faire economics, and when the market collapsed in 1837, 1839, and 1857, the ruling administration sat by and watched. They believed it was not the government's place to meddle in the happenings of the market. From the example of American economic history, we can draw that unfettered capitalism leads to credit bubbles, periodic economic collapses, periods of high unemployment, frozen credit, and falling prices, and then the cycle starts over. It's arguable, then, that in a capitalist system, some degree of government involvement appears to be necessary to soften the economic cycles. But we'll save that conversation for the episodes on Keynesian economics. If we come from the perspective that gradual and consistent growth is better than volatile and sporadic growth, then in a capitalist system, some degree of government regulation appears necessary. But it's a tricky puzzle, and there's been no shortage of devastating economic downturns even under periods of high government regulation. Finding the right balance is part of what makes economics so interesting and controversial. Regarding communism, the ideology in its pure form has never existed in practice on Earth, at least not in the form that Marx described. True communism, where the government controls every aspect of economic life, and the people live without money, without profits, and without religion, has never existed in human history. Such a great centralization of power seems unwieldy, undesirable, and in some ways, even naive. Communism doesn't account for people's seemingly innate drive to look out for themselves first. Rather, it seems that true communism tries to ignore people's greed. Also, there's a huge variance between communism in practice and communism in theory. In theory, communism is the party of the proletariat, under which the oppression of the working class should cease. But in practice, variations of communism oversaw some of the largest human rights atrocities in human history, atrocities which were largely carried out against the working class. I'm referring to the gulags of the Soviets and the genocides of Pol Pot in Cambodia and Mao Zedong in China. Of course, I know capitalism isn't without its own atrocities. King Leopold's slavery and the exploitation of the resources and people of impoverished nations all come to mind. But it's pretty hard to morally equate the two. The centralization of power into the hands of the government, as communism would have it, is a dangerous and powerful tool that humans seem incapable of wielding ethically. Besides that, contrasting the economic growth of Soviet Russia, Communist China, and Communist North Korea to that of the capitalist countries, 
It's fairly indisputable that capitalism has led to more sustained economic growth than its communist counterparts. Regarding workers' rights, one of the pillars of Marxism, it's also hard to make a case that life for the working class under communist countries was actually better or any less oppressive than life under capitalism. So in that regard, capitalism appears to have come out on top as well. This is partly to do with the fact that the distinction between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat has faded in recent years. Equity markets, 401ks, and pension funds have enabled the working class to become more than dependent wage earners, and has blurred the lines between the owners of capital and those dependent on them. In fact, as of 2016, over half of Americans have some kind of investment portfolio. Aside from the lines between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat being blurred, things like workers' unions have also fought for workers' rights, which have contributed to safer, higher-paying jobs and helped to balance the scales between the proletariat and the bourgeois. It's also worth noting, by the way, that the communism of Russia, China, Cambodia, and North Korea, though inspired by Marx, would have probably been unrecognizable to him. As I mentioned earlier, communism in theory is very different than communism in practice. Because of this variance, whenever someone tries to take communism out of its box and apply it to the real world, some amount of interpretation has to occur in order to make the theories practical. When Vladimir Lenin got a copy of Marx's Das Kapital, he took it with him to Russia and used the ideas to stoke the Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin's mutation of Marxist DNA turned Marx's ideas into a half-breed of violence, totalitarianism, and socialism. Stalinism, Maoism, and plenty of other isms that rose to power in the 20th century were all iterations of Marx's original theories. It's worth noting here that capitalism in theory and capitalism in practice are much more similar. That's why when you compare capitalist countries economically, they look much more similar. Free markets and private property are all common characteristics, whether you look in England, Australia, Japan, or the United States. Marx, though obviously the progenitor of communist ideology, would have probably been horrified to find out the millions who starved, died, or were exterminated in the name of his theories. But Marx can't be completely absolved. He is criticized for his acceptance of violence as a means of bringing about social change. He even said, quote, no great movement has ever been inaugurated without bloodshed, unquote. But he later referred to the American Revolution and Napoleon's capture of France as examples of this. I don't think that he was referring to genocides and murders in the tens of millions. It's also worth noting that considering the 150 or so years of experimentation since Marx, socialism has proven dependent on one important factor, a rich population. The reason for this is that governments really only have three sources of revenue. They can print money, they can go into debt, or they can tax the populace. But only one of those options is sustainable, taxing the populace, meaning it's people and businesses. But in order for that to work, the people must be sufficiently wealthy, and businesses must be sufficiently numerous and profitable. But as we discussed earlier, Capitalism has proven to be arguably the most effective method of making people and businesses wealthy. Therefore, socialism is most effective within a capitalist system, where private property rights and free markets are upheld. Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Canada, all socialist-leaning countries, each have free markets and protect private property rights at their core. Without these capitalist qualities, pure socialism has struggled to endure. Tying this episode back into the narrative of U.S. economic history, neoclassical economics combined with Keynesian economics has become the predominant framework for understanding the American economy. 
Marxism and the rise of communism also have obvious implications for the course of U.S. history, especially in the 20th century. In the next episode, we'll jump back across the Atlantic to the United States and pick up with the state of the economy in the years before the Civil War and discuss the economics of a country being torn apart. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.